This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm-mm-mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Good morning. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. Russian forces have pulled back to eastern Ukraine, leaving in their wake evidence of unspeakable war crimes. David Martin will take a closer look at the massacre in Ukraine and calls to try Vladimir Putin for war crimes. While Seth Doan talks with a man who spent decades uncovering the corruption that's made Putin a very rich man. Then on to a somewhat more cryptic subject. The dollar bill proclaims, in God we trust. But who do you trust when you invest in so-called digital dollars? David Pogue unravels the mysteries of cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrencies may be all the rage. Cryptocurrencies, crypto. 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 They're digital currencies that bypass the banks and the government. And if they strike you as a little baffling, you're not alone. It's very confusing. We're in the very, very early stages. I liken this to maybe the 1994 of the internet. Coming up on Sunday morning, a practical guide to using the new currencies for anyone who's used to using the old kind. 
So often the women behind our presidents offered their own fascinating stories. Leslie Stahl is talking with the actor starring in the new TV series, The First Lady. Well, let me tell you about something. Michelle Pfeiffer plays Betty Ford. I am your wife, not one of your girlfriends. Gillian Anderson plays Eleanor Roosevelt. Explain that to them, Barack. And Viola Davis plays Michelle Obama. I didn't know until I started investigating and doing research who these women were beyond the images that we saw. Later on Sunday morning, First Ladies of the United States. Faith Saley looks into the case of an exhibit celebrating Sherlock Holmes. Have a story from Steve Hartman and more on this Sunday morning, April 10th, 2022. And we'll be right back. Ukraine's President Zelensky is demanding world leaders mount a swift response to Friday's train station attack on civilians in eastern Ukraine. He called the attack yet another example of Russian war crimes. Our David Martin looks into the charges and the brutal history of war crimes. More than 50 innocent people trying to flee the fighting killed in a Russian missile attack on a crowded train station. Among the first responders, investigators gathering evidence to determine if this is a war crime. War is full of unspeakable violence, and civilians always suffer. But it is a crime to kill civilians on purpose. We're seeing a pattern of deliberate attacks against civilians. Ambassador Beth Van Schock is the State Department official in charge of assembling evidence that could prove Russia is committing war crimes in Ukraine. Every day, it seems, there is another crime scene to investigate. Some of them encompass entire cities where residents are being relentlessly bombarded by the Russians. I think the Mariupol theater attack is really emblematic of that. Obviously, civilian, full of individuals who are sheltering from the war around them, and it gets deliberately targeted by Russia's forces. So how do you distinguish between a war crime and just atrociously bad behavior? What we need to do is focus on deliberate attacks against civilians or indiscriminate attacks against civilians. Those are clear war crimes. Not, there's no fog of war here, right? If you look at a map, for example, of Mariupol, you can see where the military objectives might be, which would be appropriate targets for a military campaign. And then you see where the actual strikes were happening. Then there are the streets of Bucha individuals who clearly were in custody with their hands tied, shot execution style, left in basements, left um, in fields. This is not just shells coming from miles and miles away. This is close range violence committed by, at the hands of Russia's forces. Have you seen any evidence that the Russians are actually trying to cover up crimes? Chillingly, less of that than you might expect. The bodies are being left in the street. They seem to be doing this in, in a unbelievably brazen way that's that's really shocking. So who do you go after first? The perpetrator who pulled the trigger, the commander of the troops, or their leaders back in Moscow? 
Frankly, the answer is all of the above. But you're always looking to go up the chain of command to the architects of this terrible violence. In the case of Ukraine, the prosecutor could go very quickly to the more senior ranks because of the massive evidence that is available. Justice Richard Goldstone, the chief prosecutor of war crimes committed in Bosnia in the 1990s, says the key in Ukraine will be establishing a pattern. If Bucha is an exception, it may be difficult to put it at, at the door of, of, President, of President Putin or of his senior generals. But if what we're seeing in Bucha is repeated in one village after the other, and that's not coincidence, there obviously is an order for that system to be carried out. It took years to investigate Bosnia, but the president of Serbia himself, a dictator named Slobodan Milosevic, ultimately ended up in the dock at the International Court in The Hague. President Milosevic, in his wildest dreams, never thought he'd be standing trial in The Hague. But there was a revolution in his country and he was kicked out and he was put on a plane and bundled off to, to The Hague. Milosevic, who died in prison before a verdict could be reached, was small fry compared to Vladimir Putin, who President Biden says should be tried as a war criminal. You saw what happened in Vukic. This warrants him, he is a war criminal. How do you make a case against Putin? Because he is essentially an autocrat with complete control over the apparatus of the Russian state and the Russian military, it's actually a much easier case than we've seen in some other situations. Do you need some kind of verbal direction that he gave to his commanders? even without the so-called smoking gun order, there is still this idea of command responsibility that the images are so stark, it's so clear that his troops are running amok, um, terrorizing the civilian population within Ukraine. Have you heard anything Putin has said to date that could be used against him as evidence of a war crime? It's more what he hasn't said, I think, that's important, is he must know the facts from, from watching his own television screen. And if he hasn't taken steps to stop it, that would make him guilty of a war crime. Will Vladimir Putin ever be indicted for war crimes? I think he will be indicted. I'm not sure whether he'll be in custody. If President Putin remains in power and remains in Russia, he's not going to stand trial at the International Criminal Court in The Hague. That in no way should dissuade prosecutors from going ahead with their work. You never know what, what will happen. An indictment of Putin would make the president of Russia an international fugitive. It's not easy for a head of state uh, to fear being arrested when he or she puts foot in a European country or in a North American country. He is inevitably now trapped in Russia. He will never be able to travel internationally because it would be too great a risk that he would be captured and brought before a, a court of law. The same holds true for any other Russian charged with war crimes. They will enjoy some impunity while they stay within Russia. But what we have seen is perpetrators don't stay within their home states. They want to go shopping in Europe or go on vacation somewhere, and they get identified, and then the law enforcement is activated, and we are never more integrated than we are now. If uh, no Russian ends up standing trial, will the, this effort have failed? I don't think so. I think it's incredibly important to document the truth of what is happening, if only for the purposes of keeping an accurate history of this horrific moment in time, but also for the benefit of the victims and the survivors. Correspondent David Martin. 
By some estimates, Vladimir Putin is worth more than $200 billion. Seth Doan speaks with a businessman who's made it his life's work to expose the web of corruption behind Putin's immense wealth. All of a sudden, the world cares about Vladimir Putin's evil. And Bill Browder, a Putin target himself, says the war in Ukraine is sharpening the world's focus on the Russian president's, quote, evil. But that's long been clear to the UK-based American-born businessman. It was in this London park that Browder says he received an alarming phone call. U.S. intelligence had learned he might be kidnapped and taken to Russia. My safe world in London completely evaporated. Browder's decades-long odyssey with the top levels of Russian power started after he moved to Russia in the 1990s to profit from its privatization following the fall of the Soviet Union. Browder's Hermitage Fund soon became the largest foreign investment fund in the country. They researched Russian companies initially to invest. What we discovered was that the oligarchs and corrupt officials who controlled these companies were stealing all the, all the profits, all the assets out of the companies. And so the only way that, that I felt like I could responsibly invest is if I could figure out how they were doing the stealing and then try to stop them. Not a way to make yourself very welcome in Russia. Well, it was, it was interesting because at the beginning of this moment, Vladimir Putin was fighting with the same guys that I was fighting with. But it turned out that he wasn't trying to end the oligarch era. He just wanted to become the biggest oligarch himself. This is quite a web. Well, this gives you some sense. The money flowed from the Russian treasury. Browder showed us some of the elaborate money laundering operations they helped to uncover. Moldova, through Latvia, then to Switzerland. The whole idea of money laundering is to make it so complicated that effectively nobody could put together a chart like this. It takes a, an investment guy who's moved to Russia to do this? It takes an investment guy whose lawyer and friend was brutally murdered and has made it his mission for the rest of his life to go after the murderers to do this. That lawyer and friend was Sergei Magnitsky, who'd been investigating a tax fraud scheme on Browder's behalf. My company paid taxes to the Russian government. A bunch of Russian officials seized my documents and then organized an identity theft of my companies and then organized for a $230 million tax refund of taxes that we paid back to those stolen companies so they could enjoy the money. Sergei was the person who figured out the whole $230 million tax rebate fraud. Magnitsky then provided testimony to the Russian State Investigative Committee. But five weeks after Sergei testified, the same officials who he testified against arrested him, put him in pretrial detention in Russia, where he was then tortured to get him to withdraw his testimony. Sergei Magnitsky died in a Russian jail in 2009. He was 37 years old. Do you feel responsible for his death? I do. How do you deal with that? I made a vow to his, his memory to his family, to myself, that I was going to devote all of my time, all of my energy, and all of my resources to go after the people who killed him and make sure they face justice. It's wonderful to see you. He lobbied for a landmark piece of legislation called the Magnitsky Act. It originally sanctioned people linked to that tax fraud and Sergei Magnitsky's death. Signed into law in 2012, it focused attention on the sort of corruption they'd uncovered. Part of the money from the scam went to purchase a whole bunch of properties. Some of that money from the tax scheme wound up in London, 
New York, and Dubai. So you have people in the tax office with neighboring villas. Correct. His search for justice was the basis for a best-selling book. Now out this week is his latest, Freezing Order, published by Simon & Schuster, a division of Paramount Global, which owns CBS. It's the tale of what happened next, a true story of money laundering, murder, and surviving Vladimir Putin's wrath. Some of this sounds like something out of a mob mafia movie. Vladimir Putin is the mafia boss. All of his ministers are like the... If you look at the Sopranos, like the New Jersey Mafia and the Brooklyn Mafia and the Philadelphia Mafia, they, all, they can all take as much money as they can steal, and then they've got to pay a tribute up to the Mafia boss, which is Vladimir Putin. Browder alleges that some of that stolen $230 million ended up in Vladimir Putin's hands, a leader infamous for his shadowy wealth. The Russian president's official salary is about $140,000 annually, which raises some obvious questions. Inside Putin's $1.4 billion residence. It is $700 million yacht. With a million-dollar watch collection. Putin has long maintained Sergei Magnitsky died of a heart attack, and his animus towards Browder was clear in this 2018 presidential press conference. For instance, we can bring up the Mr. Mr. Browder. When he suggested to Donald Trump that Russia might be willing to swap 12 indicted Russian military intelligence officers if the U.S. would turn over Bill Browder. I was in shock. He has successfully campaigned for other countries to adopt the Magnitsky Act to target corrupt officials and human rights abusers. And Browder is proud that it's now among the sanctions being used to punish Russia since its invasion of Ukraine. The story of Sergei Magnitsky was a tiny microcosm of what's now been multiplied by a million times. The people of Ukraine are bearing the criminal brunt of Vladimir Putin in the same way as we did, in a very small way. And I feel heartbroken because if people had listened more to what I was saying over the last 10 years, perhaps we wouldn't be in this situation. It has no intrinsic value. You can't hold it. Often you can't spend it. So what is it about cryptocurrency? David Pogue explains. If you haven't heard of crypto, you clearly haven't been watching TV lately. Cryptocurrencies, for the most part, in the green today. Crypto. 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 Yeah, I don't think so. If you're not quite sure what crypto is or what you're supposed to do with it, in the next seven minutes, you will learn everything there is to know about crypto that's possible to learn in seven minutes. It's as easy as one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Number one. Bitcoin was only the first crypto. Crypto is short for cryptocurrency. Bitcoin was the original one, and it's still by far the most popular, but there are over 10,000 different cryptocurrencies. Anyone can start one up. Number two, they're purely digital currencies. If you go to Google Images and you type in Bitcoin, you get thousands and thousands of pictures of physical metal coins. Don't be fooled. The only place you can see cryptocurrency is on your phone or on your computer screen. The only cash register is the internet. Number three, crypto is not easy to spend. This is another reason why Bitcoin may not strike you as a regular currency. For now, you'll have a really hard time spending it. It's gonna be 9.79. Do you take Bitcoin? No, unfortunately we don't. 
Do you take Bitcoin? Uh, no. Do you take Bitcoin? No, no. One of the few stores that accept Bitcoin directly is the PJ Bernstein Deli in New York. You take Bitcoin? Actually, we do, sir. You do? Here's what it looks like to pay for lunch with crypto. So I'm going to send 25 bucks. Do you have the little code mm -hmm. thing? It's going to send me a verification code, which is 2808216, and submit. Pleasure doing business with you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Number four, banks and governments aren't part of the chain. So crypto needs some trustworthy way to track all those transactions. And that is what the blockchain is. It's a theoretically tamper-proof public online database. It's a new type of ledger where different parties who don't know each other and certainly don't trust each other actually can trust that, they, that that shared ledger is the so-called golden copy of all the data. Caitlin Long is the CEO and founder of Custodia Bank, a bank for digital currencies. Can I see it? All you need is an internet connection. And sure enough, at websites like blockchain.com, you can look at the transactions happening in real time all essentially anonymous. So if you can't really shop with cryptocurrencies, then what good is it? At this point, it's mostly an investment, a speculative one that got a big spike during the pandemic. Number five, today, crypto is primarily for investors. Oh, I think it's like probably the biggest bubble of our lifetime. I mean, I, I can't see why this just couldn't go, could be worthless at some point, it's very possible. Ryan Payne is the president of Payne Capital Management, a wealth management firm. You think it's going to zero? There's no, there is no intrinsic value. Like, look, we use oil, even gold. Whereas with Bitcoin, there's no real use in society for it, which again, in my mind, equals could be worth nothing. But traditional currency isn't based on anything physical either. A dollar bill has value only because we all believe that it does the good we use as money is a piece of linen with a picture of a dead president in green ink printed on it. For the last 50 years, nothing's been backing it substantially since the U.S. and the rest of the world moved away from the gold standard. It just is an intermediary. That's all it is. Number six, you buy and sell crypto at exchange websites. This is what it looks like to buy $50 worth of Bitcoin at Coinbase. Dot com, which is the largest U.S. exchange. My email address, they send a verification email to me. Oh, they want my phone number now. That wants to know the code they just sent. Last four digits of my social security. Take a picture of my driver's license, bank PIN number, and password. $50, buy now. And I have successfully purchased one one-thousandth of a Bitcoin. I'm rich, I tell you, rich! Number seven. Most cryptocurrencies are volatile investments. I did all that. Last May, I bought some Bitcoin, and within six months, my money had more than doubled. And then as of this week, it has crashed almost all the way back down to where it started. Number eight, it's going to get easier. It's very confusing. We're in the very, very early stages. I liken this to maybe the 1994 of the internet, and it will have a look and feel very much like your online banking. Crypto has some other problems to overcome before it's ready for the mainstream. There are all kinds of scams. The transactions are slow. 
If you lose your crypto password, you can lose your entire investment. And crypto transactions can bypass the U.S. financial sanctions on Russia. And there's a terrible environmental cost. Creating new bitcoins and confirming their transactions require massive banks of computers burning vast amounts of power. By some estimates, every time you make a bitcoin transaction, its network spews out half a ton of carbon dioxide. I'm trying to figure out how you can look at the same facts as crypto fanatics and draw such different conclusions. We love a great story. Bitcoin's a great story. Decentralized finance is a great story. So this is just human nature doing what it does over and over again, uh, diluting itself. But we know based on history how these things end. Caitlin Long could not disagree more. It's not a perfect system by any stretch, but it's going to make things better, faster, cheaper, more secure, and frankly, devolve power away from the big banks and even big governments towards the individual. Number nine, crypto is polarizing. You can't believe how many haters and how many fanatics there are. But at this early stage in the life of crypto, everyone seems to agree on one thing. I certainly would not ever encourage anyone to put more money into this than you can afford to lose. My philosophy is just put money into it, you can afford to lose. Why would anyone spend decades collecting Sherlock Holmes memorabilia? As Faith Saley tells us, the answer is elementary. It wasn't easy for Glenn Maranker to select what to share from his Sherlockian trove when he and his wife Kathy created the exhibit Sherlock Holmes in 221 Objects, now on display at the Grolier Club in New York City. How many objects are in your collection? About 8,000. When do you stop? My hope is I will stop the day before I die. It's not hard to deduce why the Marankers chose 221 objects. Fictional detective Sherlock Holmes and his stalwart sidekick, Dr. James Watson, share a London flat at 221B Baker Street. There's no mystery why Glenn Maranker is fanatical about the mercurial detective. Kind of a magical figure. He can do things you and I can't do. And he was highly flawed. No doubt a misanthrope, probably a bit of a misogynist, yet he spent his life helping people. A former executive at Apple, Maranker has amassed a treasure of Holmesiana, first editions, pirated copies, illustrations, and letters. A very large part of what interests me about the, the items in my collection is how did this book get written? Why was it written? How much did Conan Doyle make on it? What is the backstory? Scottish author Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, a doctor by trade, published his first Sherlock Holmes case in 1887. Fifty-nine stories followed. Victorian and Edwardian readers clamored to get their hands on every new installment, says Kathy Maranker. People would buy the latest issue of the Strand magazine at the news shop, at the train stations, and they would become engrossed and they would tumble into the story like Alice falling down the rabbit hole. They would look up and they missed their stops. The 221 objects offer a little myth busting too. Interesting though elementary, said he. Elementary. Uh, yes. Now that may not be the line you remember, 
You probably remember Elementary, My Dear Watson, which actually is not in this story. It's not in any story that Arthur Conan Doyle ever wrote. And now that we've cleared that up, how about that iconic hat and pipe? Neither the deerstalker hat or the meerschaum pipe appears in any of the stories. What? They're not there. The closest we get is this deerstalker, which appears in one of the original illustrations, but it's not mentioned in the story itself. The signature pipe was an invention of actor William Gillette, who first played the detective in 1899 and wanted to brandish a big, bold prop. So he wrote to Conan Doyle and said, do you have any objections if I use such a pipe? And Conan Doyle politely said, you can do whatever you want. I don't care. Perhaps Doyle's indifference to Sherlock's persona had something to do with the fact that he came to resent the popularity of his hero, so much that he ultimately threw Holmes over a cliff at the hands of his mortal enemy. And one of Marenker's most prized items is Doyle's written confession. I have been much blamed for doing that gentleman to death, but I hold that it was not murder but justifiable homicide and self-defense, since if I had not killed him, he would certainly have killed me. But Doyle never truly succeeded in killing off the old chap. Just ask Glenn Meranker. You know, when you talk about Sherlock Holmes, he sounds like a real person and someone you know. He was a real person. In fact, we're not even sure he's not with us still. Surely he would have had an obit if he died. <laughs> I'm convinced at 150, give or take, he's still with us. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Eleanor Roosevelt, Betty Ford, and Michelle Obama. Certainly among the many fascinating women to occupy the White House. Leslie Stahl is talking with the stars portraying these three remarkable first ladies. Michelle Pfeiffer plays Betty Ford. The ERA has never been concerned with making women the same as men, just equal to. I didn't know how much she had done behind the scenes and how really politically active she actually was. Viola Davis plays Michelle Obama. In four years, I don't want to look back and think, what did I become living in that house? She came into the relationship with her own agency and autonomy. And then all of a sudden, she sort of had to trade it in, you know, to become first lady. Add some hope to it, but he needs to state the facts plain and simple. 
There are 30 million Americans out of work and they don't want to be pandered to. Gillian Anderson plays Eleanor Roosevelt. I had admired her for such a long time. I didn't quite understand why they asked me. I'm five foot three and she was close to six foot. And I kept saying, are you sure? Like, <laughs> yeah, but really? you don't look teeny on television. Yeah. But I fell so in love with her in the process and was so glad that I said yes. The portraits of these first ladies will air in a 10-part series on Showtime, a division of CBS's parent company, Paramount Global. Don't push me off. I am your wife, not one of your girlfriends. At first glance, these first ladies seem to have little in common. I have done everything I was supposed to do! But... Even though they all obviously existed in different historical times, one of the really strong themes that runs throughout the series is finding their voice, their struggle to be heard. So you let him off. He accepted the pardon. That is an admission of guilt. Without consequences for his actions. I was surprised and frankly thrilled that so much of this series takes place in the bedrooms, where the intimacy of the first family is portrayed for us. And I just want to go through some of the scenes that stick out in my mind. And one, uh, Michelle, is when uh, Jerry Ford pardons Nixon, mm. and Betty is livid. It's Do you remember? Oh, yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's the angriest that we see her. Yeah, you were seething. You know that this makes us look complicit, don't you? Like we're part of the cover-up! She had made a promise to the American people that this family would always be truthful. And I think she held Jerry to such a higher standard that she really, really believed in her mind that he was going to do the right thing. And um, I don't... Because Jerry thought he was doing the right thing. Well, he thought he was doing the right... Mm, he thought he was doing the... Well... <laughs> he thought he was healing the country. And he knew he it was going to hurt him politically. But she was offended. Because she felt that it, it tainted the family, the honor of the family, and the integrity of the, of the family. I'm saying that I can contribute. And I'm saying, with all due respect, that you're not qualified. Excuse me? I don't want you to become a liability to your husband, is all. But you were more than happy to pit me out during the campaign. The campaign is over. This is politics. In more behind-the-scenes moments, the series takes some dramatic license. Viola, one of the scenes that keeps resonating in my mind was how hostile the relationship between Michelle Obama and Rahm Emanuel was. I didn't realize it was that intense. Well, I think we took liberties. I actually don't believe that Michelle would, you know, cuss out Rahm Emanuel. I think that um, Michelle stayed in her lane. Well, if Michelle would stay in her lane, why was the decision made that she would not be portrayed that way? Because you know that once you get to that White House as the first black president and the first black lady, you know what you're up against. What? Rom thinks that... Stop right there. You tell your work wife that your actual wife said to stay out of our family business. Got it. Now I have two wives and neither of them are happy. It's like the famous quote, we wear the mask that grins and lies. 
So I'm saying that there is a protocol that Michelle is aware of. But with Rom, we took some liberties. We did. For dramatic purposes. Three, two, one. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. You see each of the first ladies grow in their public roles. She hated public speaking. The cabinet is convening. And yet she did it anyway. She really, really believed that what she had to say was so much more important than anything that was going on for her and her fears and her self-doubt. My doctor uh, advised me that the source of my pain, it was actually much deeper. And he thought it might be a good idea for me to see a psychiatrist. What was the moment when you said, I get this woman. And it was. I can play her. I saw my mother in her. And I was very moved by that, by women of that generation. Revolutions were happening all around them, but they had made a pact already to really live for their husband's ambitions and fulfillments and support them. And all of a sudden, the rules of the game change on them. And they were too far in to reverse course. It was so terrible to have a black family in this house that they elect him. This is not about us. Isn't it? In a way, Viola Davis had the greatest challenge. Everyone knows who Michelle Obama is. They know what she looks like. They know what she sounds like. They love her. If she had been dead for 100 years, <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? Mm, I um, do know and, exactly and, what you're and saying. And it behooved me to look at her behavior, her hands, mm. how she holds her pearls, how she holds her lips. It's like all of that work before I could even get to what happened in the White House. You are going to be a dope first lady. Viola Davis feels a special responsibility for the series. Fashion shoots, gardening, you want me to be roasted alive as being elitist and out of touch? She's one of the executive producers. Tell us how it came about and why you wanted to do it why I wanted to do it in the beginning and then why I wanted to do it once I got on the set where I'm like, why the hell did I want to do this? I wish I had a better answer. It's a chance for um, women to play roles that are complicated. And who these women were beyond, you know, the images that we saw on television, I was like, are you kidding me? We can get these really awesome actresses every single season, then they'll have the ability to shine. So there will be more seasons with new casts of first ladies shining more light on the struggles, emotions, and influence of these important figures in American history. They really are the unsung heroes, working behind the scenes and working for social justice. They had the courage to really listen to what they felt was just. Steve Hartman this morning has the story of a man driven by a most singular vision. You're welcome to listen in, but I chose this week's story mainly for an audience of one, this 12-year-old named Ted. 
Yes. Ted is my nephew. Very hard. And he says sometimes his blindness feels insurmountable. I see. I thought like I was doomed. <laughs> that, that, that does sound a little immature, but... A what was me kind of feeling? Yes. I really want to be like everybody else sometimes, you know? And that's why, when I heard about this drag racer attempting to set a new world speed record, I thought Ted and others like him had to meet the driver. In 2012, Dan Parker of Columbus, Georgia got in a crash. He suffered a traumatic brain injury so severe it blinded him. I never imagined I'd be back in the seat of a race car. But I've been a racer my whole life. I just had to figure out another way to do it. A machinist by trade, Dan got adaptive equipment so he could make parts. And then designed this entire race car. Everything in this car? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. That just amazes me. What does he look like? <laughs> mustache and a beard? I have a mustache. You have a mustache? See? Whiskers? <laughs> I hope nobody sees them. Oh, don't worry about it. That won't be an issue. Anyway, back to our story. Last week, Dan and his crew came here to Spaceport America in southern New Mexico to attempt a Guinness record, fastest car driven blindfolded. Of course, no blindfold was needed, but he did have a special audio guidance system and, for safety purposes, a sighted driver next to him, hands hovering over the steering wheel just in case. It wasn't necessary. Dan went 211 miles an hour, set a record, and more importantly, an example. Ted, I want you to know that blindness is not what is stopping you. Surround yourself with believers and go for your dreams. You can make excuses or make it happen. Dan says inspiring the Ted's of the world is the main reason he did this. And if my nephew is any indication, it was well worth the drive. If you can do that, well, then I think I could easily pursue my dream. Wait, wait what about flying a plane? <laughs> That's exactly what I wanted to come from this. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Please join us when our trumpet sounds again next Sunday morning. If you like CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Polly, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.